Feminist Buzzkills, the show that thinks the House of Representative needs a better HR department. I'm Liz Winstead, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Moji Alawodeo. Hey, Buzzkills. Today, we premiere Johnson Watch, where each week we'll bring you all the unfolding creepiness about the most powerful Johnson in the House of Representatives. And Moji and I look at the extra layer of cruelty with these abortion bans, mental health. In states passing total bans or near total bans, the mental health of the person seeking care is not an exception, revealing yet again that the cruelty is indeed the point. And Liz and I are going to talk about rage. Journalist and author Rebecca Traister joins us to analyze who gets to have rage, who doesn't, and the rage we all feel about the Democrats' lack of abortion strategy. Oh my God, there is so much rage. And comedian Unji Kim joins to talk about her own rage about stuff like being a Korean mom who has been mistaken for an incel. <laughs> but first, some updates from last week. So last week, we told you about a Colorado judge who ruled that fake clinics have the First Amendment right to promote the dangerous junk science of abortion reversal, citing religious liberty. This week, Kansas judge says that that state cannot force doctors to promote abortion reversal because it's dangerous junk science. Two completely different takes from two completely different judges in one week. This has SCOTUS written all over it, so stay tuned. Plus, Missouri shuts Ashcroft down. We've been following the shenanigans of Missouri Attorney General Jay Ashcroft, who decided to write six parts of a reproductive freedom ballot initiative to make it all scary, inserting partial birth abortion language and other garbage. Well, this week, an appeals court smacked the pen out of Ashcroft's hand and said all the anti-abortion detritus he added to the measure was partisan, lied to voters about what the amendment was about, and ruled basically to revert language back to the neutral language initially written. Of course, Ashcroft is appealing. Now, it doesn't look good for him, but... It's great to see the smackdown of a dishonest Liberty chimp. Wish they'd done that in Ohio. Anyway, now on to Johnson Watch, our limited or possibly unlimited series that each week brings you the latest creepy things about the undesirable Johnson currently holding the job of Speaker of the House. We're going to bring Molly on to join us in this. Hey, Molly. Hey, Molly. Hello. I am thrilled Aren't to you? be here. Yes. <laughs> This week, Twitter user Receipt Maven found a clip of Mike Johnson talking about a Christian AI accountability app he uses. And Evan Hurst at Wonkek broke it down further. It's called Covenant Eyes. Hold up. Liz, explain <laughs> Covenant Eyes. Okay. It shouldn't be confused with Covenant Marriage, which uh, Mike Johnson's also in. Covenant Eyes is this app that tracks his internet use, his keyword searches on every single device to make sure he's not accessing anything, basically porn. Now, when you use the app, you choose an accountability buddy. And, okay. and they get reports sent to each other about each other's usage and... It's kind of this odd surveillance insanity. And so if this app detects anything that is nefarious, it immediately sends a like rapid response text or email or buzzing or I'm unclear what with a picture 
of the you don't have a subscription yet the person <laughs> is viewing so that they can intervene in your terrible behavior but as the commercials say don't listen to me let's hear how mike johnson sells it it scans every all the activity on your phone or your devices your laptop tablet what have you we do all of it and then it sends a report to your accountability partner so my accountability partner right now is Jack, my son, right? And so he's 17. So he and I get a report of all the things that are on our phones or all of our devices once a week. If anything objectionable comes up, your accountability partner gets an immediate notice. I'm proud to tell you my son has, he's got a clean slate, all right? Yeah. Oh, God! <laughs> okay, where do we even start? First of all, when you're jerk bud, is your 17-year-old son? What is that about? What in the underage? They don't believe in boundaries? I guess no boundaries. Isn't that like sexual harassment? There's some underage issues <laughs> happening. I, I don't know what the hell happened to family values, but apparently it's father and son bonding over how much gay porn they don't watch. Oh. Now. Also, it's a virtual circle jerk. It's basically <laughs> just like, what what are you getting off on or not? Or not. Or hoping that you're going to get something. But also, like, this is a popular app. Like, he was literally talking about this app on stage at his Baptist church in a conversation about how to keep demons away. And so I'm thinking that every Christian has this app on their phone with their accountability buddy. And it's probably popping off. Like, what, like, what if you're at a board meeting and just like your app just your accountability buddy is just like at the, at, you know, leather fest. And it's yeah. like, oh my this God. sounds like some non-consenting kink stuff that like, okay, that's weird. That's weird. It is so weird. And I've never heard of this before in my life. And the fact that Mike Johnson was on stage sounding like, you know, not only am I a client, I'm also the owner. Like he sounded, he had that kind of- He was like, look at my table. I got flyers for you. Was his son at the conference, like his poor son? His son was probably watching porn at home. Yeah, he's like, quick, I have an interval. My burner phone. <laughs> my burner phone. <laughs> and like, where are moms of liberty? Like if your phone is popping off so much, I think it becomes a masturbatory tool at some point. I think that's the thing. <laughs> just keep just keep sending those messages so that your phone just becomes this like vibrating jerk off. You know, they probably have a special case for it that's like a flashlight, so you can actually <laughs> fuck the phone. Also, his son is seventeen. Like seventeen year olds deserve some privacy. It is not great. It is not great. No, no you got to have a digital chastity belt for all of your children. No, no, no sex education, just um, a way to punish them if they ever get curious. You know, conservatives could have spent way more time doing research on Mike Johnson instead of like Hunter Biden's laptop, which they were also searching for and watching his porn. So I feel like this porn obsessed conservative, um, like just like fixation is so wild but that is just the beginning of mike johnson watch next week we're going to have a fabulous story about a son he may or may not have adopted unclear on mike johnson watch molly thanks for joining us we're going to toss it over to you to take us through the steaming news dump this week absolutely always a pleasure to talk johnson's with you <laughs> Welcome back to your steaming news dump, because uh, America is constipated with misogyny and someone's got to release it. And that person is me. First up, 
The Washington Post reports that doctors in states with abortion bans are begging their hospitals for clarity on when they can provide life-saving abortion, and they're getting back a resounding new phone. Who dis? <laughs> this means that the vaguely worded bans are working exactly as intended, causing so much confusion that pregnant people end up getting teased right up onto the edge of death. And, you know, call me old-fashioned, but I think we should keep edging for orgasms in the bedroom and not for surviving in operating rooms. Here, here. Here. Speaking of kinksters with a fetish for criminalizing doctors in Arizona, the mistress of justice is punishing them with a severe case of blue balls. That's right. A federal appeals court ruled that a group of physicians can challenge the state's ban on abortions for genetic abnormalities. Yet again, another vague law that threatens doctors with jail time. Look, you know, I don't like to kink shame. So if you get off on asking someone the reason they need an abortion, just Keep the cosplay for the dungeon and out of the discourse, please. Do us all a favor. I think that's fair. Good compromise, Molly. Way to go. You're fair. You're here. You're here. A reasonable compromise. (laughs) This last story is going to make you seek out some serious aftercare. The reproductive justice group, If When How, has dropped a massive study around abortion and who gets criminalized for it. It's a must read. So... Uh, Listen to this. This was interesting. Between 2000 and 2020, 61 people were criminally investigated or arrested for allegedly ending their own pregnancies or helping someone else do it. And who was turning them in, you ask? Turns out, sadly, it's medical providers, people in their lives, and truth social user... Women are horse patriot 69. He is prolific. (laughs) That's been your steaming news dump. Back to you guys. Thanks, Molly. Thanks, Molly. Oh, my God. Well, let's get into the stories we want to dive deeper into. Moji, kick us off. All right. So mental health challenges, including suicide and substance abuse, turn out they count for 23% of maternal deaths. But that hasn't stopped 10 states with abortion bans from explicitly excluding mental health exceptions from their bans. And these policies imply that mental health is far less important than physical health, which is a dangerous form of discrimination, don't you think? This story, I don't think a lot of people, again, it just proves when they create these bans, either they're just trying to be cruel or they literally didn't think shit through or sometimes both. It's definitely both. Yeah. But I just feel like to not include mental health or to not center mental health. explicitly exclude Mm -hmm. it is Mm -hmm. really the part that gets in my goat. And unexpectedly, (laughs) Alabama, the king of criminalizing pregnancy, does have a mental health exception in their ban. And this is the only time you're ever going to hear me cheering for any part of Alabama law. So relish in it. Yeah. You know, and as you said, mental health conditions total for 23% of maternal deaths with an identified cause. And here's what I just couldn't believe, Moji, as we were doing research, because I was like, is there politicians when they said they explicitly wanted to keep it out? Like, did they say the quiet part out loud? And sure enough, in some states they did. I was in Iowa, which is one of these states where they argued to explicitly leave it out. This representative, Shannon Lundgren, doubled down saying, I would like to recognize that abortion isn't a treatment for mental illness. And then she went on to say, obviously, if we have someone whose life is in danger, a doctor should take an approach to make sure they immediately refer them to inpatient care. Uh, In Alabama, they just jail them. Yeah, but like to say abortion's not a, a treatment for mental illness, that isn't the point. The point is, if you're somebody who has mental illness and have assessed for yourself that you don't have capacity for parenting, you don't honor that? 
you know, if postpartum depression or psychosis is something that you are particularly predisposed to, abortion is in fact a cure for your particular illness. And one in five pregnant people have pregnancy or postpartum mental health conditions, which actually matches up with the 23% of people, you know, yeah. pregnant people die because of these sort of inequities. It's really concerning. And just like in this world we live in where feelings over facts are constantly the dominant narrative, like this is so harmful. And I just want to say for people that don't know, there was an extensive study that followed people for five years in their post-abortive journey. And it was a study called the Turnaway Study. And its whole purpose was to find out what were the mental health ramifications when people are turned away from abortion care. And the two, and there was unbelievable consequences, serious consequences for people denied abortion care. But they also found that 95% of the women who had abortions through that five-year post-abortive um, space they were living said that abortion was the right decision for them. Even if they felt they had challenges around their abortion, they felt it was the right decision for them. So be mad. Abortion regret is a made-up thing. It's not a thing that happens to most people. Right. It's not a thing. Well, also, if you do regret your abortion, it is a thing. There's people that regret their abortions, but that's not the society's problem. It's not a thing we legislate around. No, it's not a thing we should legislate around. No, it absolutely is not. I know. And so, you know, speaking of just what Kareen's people into a state, we have two states that are careening people into wildness that have elections coming up and they're using gaslighting to double down on lying about abortion. We have elections coming up. We have elections coming up all over, but particularly in Ohio and Virginia, when they go to the polls, abortion is in fact on the ballot. Both governors are getting highly involved in whatever's happening in their state's electoral place. And they're pushing the larger talking points of the anti-abortion movement and trying for something, really anything, that will deliver an electoral win on abortion, something that has not happened in this country since the Dobbs decision. So let's start with Ohio. In Ohio, the voters will have an opportunity to enshrine reproductive rights into their constitution and while doing it thwart a six-week abortion ban that the state Supreme Court is already deliberating on. So naturally, Ohio anti-abortion activists and politicians are getting desperate and acting out. Actually, recently, Governor DeWine and his wife appeared in an ad encouraging people to vote no on Amendment 1, and this ad is a whopper. Everywhere we go, voters tell us they're confused about Issue 1. So Fran and I have carefully studied it. Issue 1 would allow an abortion at any time during a pregnancy, and it would deny parents the right to be involved when their daughter is making the most important decision of her life. I know Ohioans are divided on the issue of abortion, but whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, issue one is just not right for Ohio. Voters are confused because you're lying to them. <laughs> like, oh, so imagine abortion being the biggest decision in your life. No, I mean, also like the whoppers in this ad, A, it allows abortion up until birth. So <clears throat> let's talk about what that means. A, that's not a thing, and B, the amendment explicitly says that it allows abortion up into this point of viability, which is around 24 weeks. That's actually in the amendment if you read it. Yeah. And also, we have to stop allowing this right-wing narrative that allowing abortion up until birth. There's people who need abortions in their pregnancies in 28 weeks, 30 weeks, when something can go horribly wrong. 
you know, they paint it as though someone's going into labor and then they're, you know, having some ghoulish kind of abortion. And it's really fucked up. But also, that's not what this amendment does. No, <laughs> at all. It just, it brings it up to viability. Basically, remember Roe v. Wade? The thing we're all pissed about that went away? It basically falls into that tenet. I mean, I would argue that they should have done abortion up until any time a person needed it. But listen, a win is a win and a win. And restoring abortion rights or maintaining abortion rights in, in Ohio will be a win. The other lie they had is that parents have no say in their child's abortion. Well, they do have a parental notification law in um, Ohio right now. A, this amendment won't get rid of it. And B, they have a judicial bypass. So even if things stay exactly as they are, children who need abortions and don't feel that they are in a safe place to talk to their parents can indeed get around their parental notification law. So how does this change anything? Exactly. And I'm telling you, if you are 14 and need an abortion, you're normally finding a trusted adult who can help you because you don't have the kind of money. And I'm somebody who had an abortion at 16 and couldn't tell their parents and I felt really grateful to be able to have it. As we all know, abortion's safer than Tylenol or safer than things that teenagers can buy over the counter. Or safer than pregnancy. Especially if you're somebody whose reproductive parts are still developing. Like it can be incredibly hard to give birth as a teen. So just shut the fuck up, Mike DeWine. Also, Mike DeWine has been gaslighting Ohio forever. I will never forget when we just launched um, our organization. And all of the videos that we talked about last week were launched out into the forefront. Mike DeWine was leading the charge in Ohio, talking about Planned Parenthood, selling baby parts and all this shit. And he did a press conference where they did this exhaustive search about Planned Parenthood and all the clinics in Ohio to find out whether or not they were selling baby parts. And he had to hold a press conference to say, guess what? They found nothing. But here's this lie he threw in at this press conference because he couldn't just have a press conference saying, oh, I guess I was wrong. Here's what he said at the press conference. DeWine added his state investigators uncovered something he said was not humane. First cooking fetuses and then disposing of them in a landfill is not humane. Cooking fetuses. Uh, were they doing that in Ohio? Were they, were they doing that? You know what they were doing? sterilizing medical waste so that they could dispose of it properly. Not in a landfill. Not in a landfill. Why would you cook it and then put it in a landfill? You know what I mean? That's like ridiculous. That's like, you know what I'm going to do is wash up my garbage before I put it in the garbage. No, they were literally preparing to dispose of it the way that you do, like you do any medical waste. So again, just showing up with the lies all the time, fucking Mike DeWine. It's unbelievable. And this doesn't even talk about all the crazy crap that they're doing for this ballot amendment that they are going to vote on next week. They are, A, I brought up before, ignoring that this six-week ban that is on the books that passed in 2019 isn't going to happen if Amendment 1 fails. It will. Yeah, they basically are saying if you vote no, if the status quo will remain in Ohio and abortions are at 22 weeks right now in Ohio. So just, you know, give yourself time to think about it. That is such bullshit. The Supreme Court is imminently waiting to release their decision in Ohio to see how this ballot initiative plays out. Exactly. Because if the people vote, we want abortion codified, the Supreme Court, they're not going to lay down a decision. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, right? They don't have a decision. It doesn't matter. Exactly. 
exactly state unconstitutional yeah so that is such some vague bullshit where they're just like let's just pretend like this isn't happening but then moji talk about what's on the official website this is what's crazy. This is cuckoo bananas. You never seen this before. Well, I've never seen this before. Politicians are using a government-backed blog to lie about the contents of Amendment 1. And this is particularly insidious because search engines prioritize government websites because it's expected that they'll give neutral, unbiased opinions. But when you go to their website, you get things like, among other things, this amendment will give Planned Parenthood the right to make life and death decisions. Since when? Or this will allow genital mutilation of children without parental consent. Again, where and how? This is like really diving off the deep end of an accurate partisan speech. And an expert in online misinformation just stated bluntly that she'd never seen anything like this before. Like, it's just devious. Well, they also said that it was chopping up children while they were alive. Like, it also said that. And you're like, what kind of ghoulish <laughs> Halloween horror fucking flick is this? I do feel like antis have to lead with this horror gross out thing that makes no, well, I guess it makes sense. That's exactly what they're leading with. It's the only way I've ever heard like pro-choice people be like, oh, but I'm still uncomfortable with these kind of abortions. And it's like, learn about these kind of abortions, what happens and what they do. And the thing is, again, they don't want to talk about is the anti-abortion movement is like in the bushes, like lurking in the bushes with laws that are even, if you can believe it, bills that they've already written that are worse than the six-week ban, right? They're sitting there waiting with, it's called an abolition bill, equal protection, which means th that life begins from fertilization till natural death, whatever, whatever that, is. that is, right? So they're sitting there waiting that if for some reason the six-week ban goes into effect and this amendment fails, they're going to swing in hard with an even more draconian bill. That is all not just such dirty tricks. Talk about the dirtiest trick of all, maybe. Oh, the dirtiest trick of all is just before the deadline closed to re-register or to register, the Secretary of the State just quietly purged 27,000 voters from the rolls. 27,000 voters were just removed from the rolls with, with no announcement, which is normally what they do. They actually do this purging, but they usually do it with a lot more time for a person to look up and be like, oh, shoot, I was purged. Let me go re-register. There was no time to do that. No. And he didn't announce it. No, there's such a there's such a mess with all of it. And that is the way that the tricks just keep on coming. And th they are so freaked out. We opened up the Pandora's box. What happened us as advocates forced the issue put it in front of people. People understood their relationship to abortion and aren't having any of it. And they don't know what to do except these dirty tricks. And we talked about Virginia also having an uh, election on Tuesday as well. Yeah. And in Virginia, Governor Youngkin is also personally jumping in to turn the gaslight all the way up to 11, claiming his party isn't pursuing a ban at all. Right. Not at all. As in not at all. Youngkin's PAC is spending $1.4 million on ads claiming his party isn't pushing for a ban. Now, Virginia has different stakes on Tuesday. Um, what's going on in Virginia on Tuesday is every single seat in the Virginia State House is up for election. And Glenn Youngkin is a Republican, the governor. If the Republicans gain a trifecta, they're going to move to pass a 15-week abortion ban. And why this is scary is, just to give you some context, Virginia is the last state in the South not to restrict abortion at or before 12 weeks. And as we're waiting for the Florida Supreme Court to rule on their 15-week abortion ban, which if Florida Supreme Court upholds that ban, 
that means 30 days from the ruling, that rule will turn into a six-week ban because the legislature and the governor already signed a bill for a six-week ban. So we're in a Southern mess that is really, could be really scary. Governor Youngkin is is being touted as this moderate with this 15-week ban, and they're trying to, conservatives are trying to reframe a 15-week ban as some sort of compassionate compromise when we know that a 15-week abortion ban is an abortion ban. It's not a reasonable compromise, but they're looking for talking points that will let them win elections again. Ever since the Dobbs decision has gone into effect, Every time abortion is on the ballot, abortion wins. And so they're trying to find a way to talk to moderates and to talk people into thinking that they are not trying to take away their right. And that's our job to like educate people. And these politicians do not seem to want to hear from us. And you can see the media and you can see politicians buying into this narrative that yeah, that seems reasonable. You've got three months to get your abortion and to understand, not taking into account that people need to get money for their abortions. People don't have money. They need to travel. If you don't have regular periods, sometimes you don't even know you're pregnant until eight weeks in. Like none of this is reasonable, not to mention what is the line, America, that you say, this is the week that your body no longer becomes your own and becomes what the government tells you it's going to become. If you think there's a line for yourself, you tell me what that is, because I don't believe it. I don't believe that anybody, no government should decide at what week your body no longer becomes your own. Also, these 15-week bans push people into later abortions because A, where are they going to get abortions? How are they going to get money to get there? Where are the clinics that are open when your whole region has banned abortion? Exactly. And when you think about that region, if Virginia you know, goes the other way and then Florida, that means you literally have a swath from the southern tip of Florida all the way up to Washington, D.C., where there is no access to abortion. Some states have six weeks, but it's really a mess. And so yes, please pay attention on next Tuesday for the Ohio ballot initiative, for how the um, whole state house elections go in Virginia, because it really, really matters. And as always, all these stories and the stories Molly talked about will be in the show notes. And you can find the best, most up-to-the-minute resources on accessing abortion care and funding your care on our website, aafront.org. Our Charlie chatbot is on the bottom right corner and will walk anyone anywhere in the country through their options for resources for abortion. All right. Joining us now to continue some of this conversation is one of the foremost authorities on U.S. abortion policy, sexism, and justifiable rage. She's a journalist and author with two New York Times bestsellers. Please welcome Rebecca Traster. Hey, Rebecca. Hi, it's so nice to be here. So great of you to join us. Oh my God. <laughs> so great to see you. And I haven't seen you in a hundred years and I'm so excited. Yeah, me too. So, Rebecca, a few weeks ago, we were on a panel organized by the New Republic, and it included Joan Walsh, Erin Carmen, incredible women. And we were talking about abortion and the presidential race. And to summarize something you said really eloquently, you said politicians have been given a gift from citizen-led movements when we're passing ballot initiatives repeatedly, and the public is declaring their support for abortion access pretty loudly and proudly, yet... Politicians have run away from the issue for so long, they have no playbook to campaign effectively on this issue. So are Democratic politicians aware of how unprepared they are for this moment? No, they are not. <laughs> well, it really depends on which Democratic politicians, because one of the crucial things you have to understand about, I think both parties, but the Democratic Party is where it's super dysfunctional right now, 
is that the generational divide between leadership and the people coming up within the party is so vast. Yeah. And, you know, we don't need to get into this, but I do think there's something about how on the Republican side, all the oldsters on the Republican side look at the extreme conservatism of the youth, like the, the Tea Party, for example, and all those guys, McCain, McConnell, they were like, great, we're going right. These young people, the future wants to go right. We're going to, we, we have the controls. We know to ha- how to steer that ship. We're going to steal a Supreme Court seat and we're going to make the road for them. Okay. Meanwhile, on the left, the leadership class and people who have been in power for literally like five decades look at the young people and they're like, those are our activist enemies. Like they actually treat yep. their the younger generation as a force to be fought off, not as the future that they want to like help pave a path for. Okay. So that's, I think there's a crucial party difference. Both parties are run by a gerontocracy, but the Democrats treat younger people with different ideas about how to govern and what it might mean to be a Democrat as if they are the enemy, whereas the right treats them like the extreme right wing as if it's the future. So what we have, and I don't I don't want to be ageist about it because there are certainly older people within the party, including Barbara Lee, who has been talking eloquently about abortion for years. And in fact, who prior to the Dobbs decision, prior to Roe, prior to the Trump to Trump's election, introduced the Each Act, formerly known as the Each Woman Act, in part in response to an, a young activist movement, all above all, reproductive justice, young reproductive justice advocates, who pointed out that Democrats hadn't been fighting fiercely against the freaking Hyde Amendment over a period of decades. And they found their audience with Barbara Lee, who obviously has been in office for a long time, has been a righteous member of the Democratic Party for a long time, and has been holding down the left end of that caucus for a long time. And told her own abortion story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And who more recently told her own abortion story very beautifully and very powerfully. Um, so I don't want to make this about age, but it is absolutely true that there was a fantasy, I think, by a lot of people who were very like the, the people who are like, don't be hysterical, who are like, don't worry, we'll just return to where we were. Where we were was total dysfunction. And in fact, Democratic leadership Truly, in 1972, I've written about this, there was a lot of the women's movement, broadly defined at that point, was pushing for there to be a national plank on legalization of abortion, 1972, that election. And a lot of feminists actually, ironically enough, decided not to support Shirley Chisholm's candidacy for the presidency because they figured she didn't actually have a chance of winning. Never mind that Shirley Chisholm was speaking fluently, beautifully, powerfully on abortion rights. She was the honorary first co-chair of NARAL. So much of what her work was, was around, had to do with reproductive justice issues. They instead decided that they could get leverage from the guy who was going to be the candidate, George McGovern. And so they forsook Shirley Chisholm's candidacy, decided to support George McGovern, and George McGovern fucked them over at the 1972 Democratic Convention, not only by not supporting an abortion plank, but by having an anti-abortion activist speak from the floor. So they Mm -hmm. got screwed. And that was the summer of 1972. And then in January of 1973, we get Roe, Uh, obviously is a Supreme Court decision that that sort of takes care of it temporarily. I was going to say that phrase is doing a lot of work here. I know. I want to I, I want to signal that I understand that that is the fantasy version of what Roe did, but it was a federal, you know, it was it was federal law. And at that point, the legislative fight for legalization was ended. Right. And and in fact, because it was such a surprise decision and such a felt, I think, to a lot of people who were still really working out their positions around this felt like a radical shift. 
and it was a radical shift in law across the country, the Democratic Party didn't treat it as something that needed to be improved upon, protected at all costs, that was going to be fought against. They were like, oh, well, that's done. Boy, we don't have to worry about that. Meanwhile, Reagan and the the, the unholy coalition of the uh, of Christian conservatism and economic conservatism that got embodied by like what would become the Reagan presidency in 1980, the right wing starts forming itself around this. And there were still Republicans who were who were actually fighting amazingly, like against Hyde. One of the people who fought most vociferously against Hyde was Bob Packwood. Oh yeah. Pansy Bob Packwood. Yes. Mochi, do you remember, do you, do you have, I have only the slightest memory of Bob Packwood. I have no memory of Bob Packwood. Oh, oh. So having, having family in Oregon, (laughs) I can tell you Bob Packwood was probably the most, one of the most socially liberal Republicans from Oregon had to be Oregon. You know, it's like being a Rockefeller in New York. And it was all well and good till Bob Packwood started chasing his aides around his desk and was unceremoniously left office. Right. He had to literally resign for both (laughs) harassment and I believe assault charges. Yeah, it wasn't great. Boy, was he he a righteous defender of abortion rights (laughs) and fought vociferously against the Hyde Amendment. So in the category of people who are complicated, Bob Packwood. (laughs) But the right did begin to to really organize around an anti-abortion stance. So you had lots of Republican politicians from Reagan who had signed a, a liberal abortion law in California in 1967 to George H.W. Bush. Of course, the Bushes had historically been a huge supporter of Planned Parenthood. I don't want to leave off here some of the troubling connections between right-wing politics and eugenics and support of reproductive health care. But I do want to say that there was a lot of tune changing on the Republican Party because they understood that they were going to get a base vote on this and that they could organize themselves around this. In the meantime, Democrats were like, that's a yucky thing that we don't have to worry about anymore because it's done. Never mind that a couple years later, you actually get Hyde, which of course makes abortion all but inaccessible to poor people yes. and also henry hyde also unceremoniously had you know women on his lap that were not his wife having affairs you know that the, the right. hypocrisy is because but you know one thing that i wanted to just throw in quickly rebecca before you go on is the fact that not only were democrats like hey we're good that's how we got all these zombie laws that yes. stayed on yeah. the books yeah. that yeah. we are now still fighting you know with all these opportunities states didn't do shit And Americans didn't vote in midterms. Well, and talk about states not doing shit. Another thing that really that isn't directly abortion aligned, but that has everything to do with how we got here is that part of how Republicans organized after the series of defeats that they suffered, right? So the victories of the social movements of the mid 20th century, certainly around reproductive rights and access, around gay rights, civil rights, um, you know, the the union protections and expansions of the of the New Deal, right? And all of those losses that conservatism suffered and then got realigned around a new modern Republican Party. Part of what Republicans did was organize on a state and a local level. They cared. They understood that a pipeline to power meant taking over state legislatures, which meant school board seats, city council seats, state legislative seats, right? Governor's mansions. And they've been doing that over decades. They built a judicial pipeline to make baby conservative justices and shoot them into the world, okay? They also were willing to lose. I mean, you know how many times they tried to pass laws to defund Planned Parenthood and they 
lost and they lost and they lost and they lost and they lost. They didn't run from their losses. They understood that by fighting for these personhood amendments that were voted down, right, even in conservative states, that they were signaling a base that they were willing to fight for something. Democrats were doing the exact opposite thing in every way. They they totally forsook state and local politics. They did not think it was sexy. They did not invest in local politics, thereby letting Republicans take over states where they controlled not only laws around reproduction, but the voting rolls, gerrymandering, yeah. redistricting, all of the things that that we're dealing with right now. That make democracy almost impossible right now. Impossible. I mean, half of our abortion fights now are like, laws that passed in the 90s and the 2000s. Exactly. And when on some level, again, a willingness to lose, to say, you know, this isn't going to go into effect now, but maybe, you know, someday. So there was a real organizational difference and there was nobody doing this kind of work over decades. So what you have is a generation of politicians who are still in power, right? There is, it is absolutely a gerontocracy, right? And they don't have any practice with the exceptions like Barbara Lee, right? And Rebecca, you led us perfectly into what we wanted to talk about because if you cannot articulate the moral good, the community good of abortion, there is no way we're moving the needle forward because unless politicians can articulate what us activists do. And by the way, they never fucking talk to us. They talk to prognosticators and people in the horse race and all this other shit. They won't do it. So what do they gain from not talking to us in this moment so that they can bring forth an empathy in the moment that everybody who's had abortions and people who know people who've had abortions are leading the conversation and the politicians are not. So I don't think that the politicians gain anything. And you have to, we have to understand that there is an entire class of like political consultants who were also became political consultants and became highly paid in the era in which the Democratic Party policy was we don't talk about it or we use a euphemism like choice and then we try to talk about something else as soon as possible, right? Those people are literally invested. Their livings are made by coaching politicians to stay away from this lightning rod issue, right? And those are the people, the horse race people, the consultants are the people who assert generation of Democrats listen to because they have been like, you know, they just believe that these are the people who know how to make them win. Never mind that we, in fact, have lost and lost and lost and lost. But (laughs) there is a generation of people who speak differently about this. And by the way, who I think also do listen to activists, right? And you can recognize them because the Democratic leadership casts them as activists, right? Mm -hmm. You know, squad members. And doesn't back them up. No, of course not. And in fact, cast them out, you know, whenever, (laughs) all the time. You can listen to Ayanna Presley. You can listen to Cori Bush and not a squad member. And in fact, somebody considerably more toward the center. Gretchen Whitmer is a great example of somebody who speaks about this fluently and with ease. And in fact, her entire, like the, the Democratic Party leadership in the state of Michigan, which is a great example of how to do this, they're all doing it differently. And there is a generation of people who are coming at this differently and I think are winning. Whitmer's victory in Michigan, and in fact, the Democratic victory as a whole, in 2022, it was attached to an actual a referendum about the state law, about a trigger law that would have gone into effect. And so there was high turnout. Whitmer and all of the Democrats who were running with her were coached by those consultants to not emphasize abortion. It was going to be a dying issue. It was going to not, you know, and they resisted it because they actually knew themselves and had the confidence to say this is a resonant issue for voters. They were out there talking to voters. They overrode that. And a thing that I want to point to something that Whitmer does that I think is very rare. And I think that 
everybody could learn from is she integrates abortion as part of the larger fabric. Now, anybody who's paid attention to activism knows that this is what the reproductive justice movement is all about. Literally foundationally. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That you cannot silo abortion off in its own little icky corner or its own fetishized corner, right? That in fact, it is tied to access to health care, to other civil rights protections, to housing policy, to education, to child care, to paid leave, to all these kinds of policies, to, to, to union protections, labor issues, all of that. Whitmer does that. I, I don't want to say she sounds like a Republican, but she sounds like a very classic politician. She does it as a pro-business pitch. She understands the relationship between abortion restrictions and restrictions on gender-affirming health care and trans issues. She She seamlessly connects LGBTQ protections with reproductive protections and then presents it as part of a pro-business pitch that is also ultimately about family values. It's like it's like watching like an ice skater, right? Except it shouldn't be that hard because it's so obvious. She mm-hmm. says, bring your businesses to Michigan. Don't stay in these states that are going to not let you and your family live the lives you want to live and aren't going to aren't going to let you be free. Come here, bring your company here. And then your workers are going to be here and your kids are going to want to stay here. So grandma and grandpa, you get to be with your grandkids, right? She's doing all these things that it has been somehow very difficult for Democrats to do when it shouldn't be. I mean, this is something Pramila Jaipal talks about this too, that the right has like gobbled up the language of family values, of faith of freedom, of patriotism, when obviously all of those things are very much on the side of reproductive rights, justice, access, all of it. And we could all be using those words. And I think that you want to look for the politicians who understand that this is a pro-family pitch. So glad you brought that up too, because I think it dovetails into another question we had, which is, why is it that the media keeps repeating these right-wing talking points or and using them to like justify things like these 12 week bans, these 15 week bans, or like using abortion as tragedy porn. Like what does the media need to know as well? Everything that we're talking about, because the media, the media is not, is not made of different stuff than a democratic party establishment, right? Where do you think they're getting the numbers for the horse race stuff? It's from a media that thinks political coverage is like an election needle, but where we're just predicting and then basing again, the thing I said earlier about Republicans willingness to lose, I think horse race political media, and I cover political races, right? I don't want to separate myself from this. I, I work in this industry. I'm sure I've been guilty of many of these sins, right? Though I really try not to be, in part because I don't think this is a game or a race or anything that you like score no, on No, it's a people's board. lives. <laughs> but this is a political horse race media while telling itself that the correct journalistic stance is objective and distant, okay? Which is horseshit, by the way. But also has made all of this so distant, lives in a bubble of, privileges and protections like the number of people in my own profession who truly believed that roe was sufficient a that it was not imperiled but b that as long as it stood abortion was legal the only way you can believe that is if in fact you yourself do not encounter challenges is true of so much if you do not encounter challenges getting health care if you do not encounter challenges getting accessing contraception or abortion care, if you yourself do not encounter strong, big challenges in terms of accessing child care, um, if you yourself get paid leave, if you don't have any problem voting, right? Like that's pretty much the only way in which you can believe that all those protections had not 
even before the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, even before the overturn of Roe, that these things had not become battlegrounds and that people weren't encountering those challenges. So the fact that people treated Roe as a settled law and was it was only it was a hysterical position to suggest that it was imperiled and who didn't acknowledge that even while Roe stood, there were vast swaths of this country that did not have access to abortion care. I mean, that that is the, the, the mainstream political media. And I'm a part of it. Right. I'm not I'm not trying yes. to, yeah. to throw stones at it with, without acknowledging that I am in this ecosystem and I have my platform is because of it. Right. You know, as we look at this right wing shift to try to normalize 12 week bans and 15 week bans as though that's some kind of compromise. You know, we do have an opportunity to hold the media accountable for all that. But like, you know, I wanted to get into rage because at this point we've been gaslit for so long that our rage was not justified and that um, our rage was not, we weren't entitled to it. So I wanted to just shift a little bit while still talking about this to talk about how our rage ties in. And where do you think we are at on like a five point scale of like zero being, they don't give us any entitlement to our rage and five being finally society understands and accepts our rage. Where are we at at this moment? Well, in part, we're probably at different places because yes. two of us are white and one of us is black. Yes. <laughs> so that makes a real difference, which is not to say that white women's rage. So white women's rage, it's not quite as easy to say like, oh, it's it's accepted and everybody embraces it. That is not the case. It is mock. It's dismissed as wine mom shit, right? Like dumb, stupid, suburban white lady stuff. It is deployed when that rage is on behalf of a power system. So all the white moms out there trying to keep critical race theory and, you know, mentions of racism out of their school libraries, that kind of rage is in fact given a spotlight and taken very seriously. Mm -hmm. When white women's rage is directed toward a power system, then it is either highly mockable, intellectually unserious. Or unsexy. There's a definite unsexiness of it. I feel like our former president loved to talk about how unsexy. Super ugly. And nobody like nobody wants to date that crazy bitch who's always yelling, right? Black women's rage, brown women's rage is treated as dangerous, the source of comedy and entertainment, right? Like a caricature, um, a, you know, a, a, a neck-snapping character, but it is also very quickly turned into something monstrous and dangerous. And you can see that all the time in terms of the expression of when Black women express anger. It is also true, you know, one of the things that I wrote about and, and talked to a lot of people about that Black women are assumed to be angry, even in instances where they're not expressing anger. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like all of the, my Black women friends, of which I have several, it's like, oh, <laughs> it's almost like you can't raise your voice or you are that angry Black woman. Right. Yeah. Even if someone's rolling their car on your foot. <laughs> right. And I was going to say, like, what about when you are angry a lot? Right. Like, and it, to, to consider somebody already a stereotype of anger is to rob that anger of any power. Yeah. And any agency. And agency. And, you know, and I kind of sometimes look at how rage is accepted in, in, in the parallels of how power is accepted. For example, like men love the woman who invented Spanx. She's a jillionaire. <laughs> no man wanted to invent Spanx. Good for her. She's in her mm -hmm. lane. But if right. you want to be president, 
and you want to have your power that way. And so it's kind of like, do you want to have power to use it to help guide everyone's lives or just women's lives or specific things? You know, it's like, when is it acceptable and when it isn't? The whole thing is just rageful. Phyllis Schlafly <laughs> raging for the patriarchy was right. beloved. So, oh, so beloved. Right. And Nikki Haley in her own way would be beloved. I got to oh, say, like, I yes. don't know that we're going to get there unless, you know, anything could happen. Truly, truly anything could happen at this point. But, you know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would have told you I would have truly pre Hillary pre, you know, I would have told you that Nikki Haley was likely to be our first female president. I really hope that this is something I'm super wrong about in the long run, but I'm not sure I can we can say I'm wrong yet. But the metric for me, and this goes to your Spanx example, is that think about that rage and a power structure and who's in the top and who's in the bottom. And then think about where power and rage are directed if you're a woman. And if so, the Spanx inventor who is super powerful by making women's bodies conform to stereotypes that they're supposed to conform to, right? That's definitely working on behalf of a patriarchal, a white patriarchal capitalist power structure, making a lot of money by making women suck their bellies in, okay? So she's awesome. The women who are challenging that system, and when you think of what direction power moves in, are moving against the grain, those women, their power and their anger are going to be rendered problematic, hysterical, comical, dangerous, or monstrous. And that's how you that's how you figure out which which way you get cast is what is your relationship to how power works. Oh my God, Rebecca, we have to wrap up. Will you come back and talk to us again about rage and about power? Because you are literally one of my favorite public thinkers and you're just the best. And I'm so happy that you joined us because you just dropped so many knowledge bombs that I kind of can't believe it. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my God, so great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us, Rebecca. You can check out her work at New York Magazine, The Cut, or you can read her latest book, The Mad and the Bad. Well, as you know, we cannot do the work of this podcast without the tireless support of our fake sponsors. Moji, can you tell us about this week's advertiser? Hey, Bible-believing, women-loving Christian guys. You're probably always asking, how can you protect yourself and your home from the siren song of homosexuality thrusting its way through your door? From the creators of Covenant Eyes anti-masturbation software comes Homo Away, a security system that will alert you immediately if there is a UPS guy with a big package on your porch or your neighbor's porch or just driving by. Homo Away does a full body scan of all agents of temptation who come within range and also protects your neighbors by immediately cross-posting to next door, alerting them that there is an agent of sin among us. With Homo Away's drone-guided technology, you'll be able to scrutinize the level of gay danger or danger from every imaginable angle. Feeling in imminent danger? Press the panic button and Homo Away will dispatch a policeman, a fireman, a cowboy, a construction worker, and whoever else our operators determine is needed to keep you on the straight and narrow. Use the promo code it takes a village people for 20% off your first month. Homo Away, because sometimes it takes more than conversion therapy. Wow. We already had a commercial for uh, from the people from Covenant Eyes. They're listening to Pod. They were trying to get in really early. They were like, these are our people, and we want them to know who we are and care. Oh, my God.
I feel like this is a great transition to our next guest. She's a Chicago-based comedian, improviser, and host of the podcast, Two Kims, One Pod. She also knows a thing or two about rage. Listen up. I have friends with a lot of young people that are like very progressive, right? And they're constantly railing about the insidious nature of casual racism, trauma, and immigrant rights. It kind of makes me feel like they don't know any immigrant moms. Because no one is inflicting more trauma <laughs> and engaging in more casual racism <laughs> than immigrant moms. My mom only describes my friends by their ethnicity and the physical trait they are most insecure about. Please welcome Unji Kim. Thank you for joining us. Hi. So we just had this incredible conversation with Rebecca Tracer about just about rage and especially women's rage and how society actually where we're at on the scale of like how it accepts our rage. Does it accept our rage? And we're full of rage as we come to you. I think people are always surprised by how angry I am, given how I look. Maybe because you're short? I'm very small. I'm I'm bobblehead. You know what I mean? Like, I'm very small stick and then huge head. So, but I, I do think that people are surprised by the tenor of my rage. It is the rage of a woman. But it's interesting that you were talking about she's trying to justify it. It never occurred to me to justify it because it feels so evident why women should be allowed to to be angry. And I think when you said that, it struck a chord with me because I am very fascinated by male rage. It's the reason why my TikTok algorithm is all incels. TikTok 100% thinks I'm an Asian incel. And it's a, it's a bit I'm doing right now on stage about how TikTok thinks I'm an Asian incel that loves watching white women get ready. And it's very specifically, like, it's bizarre and I think it's, I love watching male anger. My favorite things when I'm um, like anxious or depressed, my, I have a YouTube playlist that I like to watch until it calms me down. And it's all like, it's Christian Bale screaming on that sound stage. The Alec Baldwin. <laughs> White men behaving badly. Yes. The Lily Tomlin one as well. Yes. The yes. Humpty's guy on set. Oh, yes. Um, uh, Alec Baldwin screaming at his daughter. Do you have Steven Crowder screaming at his wife? Do you have that one? No. Oh my God. What? Steven Crowder yelling at his wife and it's caught on their ring. Oh my God. Oh, his pregnant gotta... wife. His, yeah. Yes, his pregnant wife. She's like 11 months pregnant. She wants to go to the store and he's like having this wild uh, covenant marriage meltdown. That is, uh, you got, oh my God, I'm so glad I could bring you a Thank new you so rage. Like, my, my like nipples are hard the way that you're oh describing it. I'm like, that is so erotic. Like, I love that. I mean, it is, it, there's a part of it because it's such naked rage that is, I mean, and all of these, a lot of these are happening in intimate moments or in workplaces, like with people that you're trying to get along with and they're right. being allowed and permitted and granted tacit permission to behave this way. Yep. And I think something about that is very enticing to me. For me, I started doing comedy mm -hmm. because it was a vehicle 
to bring humor to my rage to stage. And I think that a lot of marginalized folks, queer folks, women would co-sign on that being one of the catalysts. Would you say you're in that camp? Oh, <laughs> you think things were going good and that's why I'm doing comedy? <laughs> <laughs> well, you did start doing comedy at 30 weeks pregnant. Um, so what was life before that, that you're like, I'm going to try this as a next step. Also like while so pregnant, because I had a child and I think 30 weeks is when I stopped doing everything. And you're here picking up new skills. Oh, well, I mean, I was doing improv for a long time. And then, you know, this is a different time. I, I think it would be less weird now, but when I started, there was just, everyone was 25 and a dude and I just like audiences didn't want to see a 38 week lady chasing her dreams. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) You think they do now? (laughs) I don't know. I just, I know maybe like the scene is, they're just like, it just feels different now. I, I think they would allow for that sort of difference. Just at the time people were just like, this lady needs to go home. And it was the last Second City audition I ever did. Like I was also heavily pregnant. Like they asked you a non-improv fact about you that you could talk, talk about at the top of the audition. And my non-improv fact about me was I was two centimeters dilated. <laughs> the room, like they were like, oh no. <laughs> like, people like the connection between um, like, how little people understood about the women's I, I'm sure a hundred like men in that room thought the baby was gonna fall out of me yeah yes. you know how big I mean? is a centimeter yes. and they were all like can I google centimeter yes now like, like I'm not shoving her back but because I'm unwell like I just want I needed the time and the that space I booked a gig for six weeks postpartum postpartum of my due date okay and I was a week late because it was my first so and I did that gig. <laughs> Let's talk about that. I need to unpack that with you. Yeah. Also, I was so tired at five weeks. Tell me more about this energy it's you crazy. had. I was leaking through my shirt. Like it was crazy. I had to put in those things. It was crazy. I don't know why I did it. I think I was so afraid of losing momentum. Because, mm-hmm. you know, there's so often times inside of comedy and any creative work, everyone is telling you no. And there's so much um, inertia and uh, obstacles. So any momentum is very easily lost. So I just was so terrified of that. I think I made that, you know, if I had, I didn't do that postpartum, I, knowing my future self and how lazy I am, I may, set that date and I just went. I, I think, cause you know, in that time, your body is just operating in autopilot. So I was like, I guess this is on my calendar. I gotta go. Like it, it didn't occur to me not to. Uh, you know, white supremacy's foundation is that you can't even differentiate what's urgent anymore. And also that fear of if you do not show up, you will be forgotten forever. Mm-hmm. Or if you yes. don't do this, everything has this equal urgent weight, especially in a field that is still dominated by white dudes who your value is judged by whether or not your life experience is interesting to them. Yes. That is a whole crazy shit bath that we chose to do. Mm-hmm. We picked it. You guys just we walked into it. it. As adult women with other options. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is strange to have so much of your life evaluated in this way. And not evaluated like um, 
with kindness, but with like <laughs> weights and measures, right? This amount of trauma garners this. With because you have this, you're allowed. You you can give um you know you can pitch me something. You can write a pilot about that, but not about this. Like everything is quantified and codified in a way that has is divorced from your lived experience. Right. So like, it's really codified in a way to put you into a box that gets smaller and smaller, <laughs> and less <sighs> less meaningful to you. You're mm-hmm. like okay, I guess I guess this is the part where I'm selling the bisexual line through line in my story. Like, or this is when I'm talking about how like my immigrants, you know, and none of it is, none of it can be packaged in a way you're, you, where you are allowed to be yourself, especially if you're at all deviating from the norm. Right. Like currently, you know, as people of color or like so much of our stories are being sold in packaged in these like small little easily digestible packets and pellets. So like you have to be very careful. I don't know. It's it's something that I'm, as I get deeper into show business, I'm like, brother, like, I, I don't know if I have the stomach to repackage my story meat this way. Yeah. You know, we when we were just talking with Rebecca, we were talking kind of about this very thing where it's like, They'll accept you and your power if you stay in a lane that they don't want to be in, right? You know, and if you want to expand out of that lane, you know, then it's then it's a whole fucking conversation. Then you're a threat. Then it's a whole thing. What if you wanted to play, you know, Yago in like, what if you wanted to do a role that that's just like out there? Roles are roles, stories that you want to tell of being of your humanity or even stories you want to tell of your immigrant life Mm -hmm. that don't fit a narrative they want to hear about immigrant life. It's wild to me how we have to force our authenticity. I mean, especially when we talk about rage, so much of my immigrant experience is filled with that. You said that in your comedy, in the clip that we've rolled in when you came in, we, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about that because immigrant (laughs) moms are some next level shit. It seems like, <laughs> and it's specifically within the Korean culture. It's a concept called Han, and it's a very postmodern, post-colonial idea where it's like an elegiac sort of relationship we have, a bittersweet relationship we have to our rage, and there's sort of no word for it, but it's a rage but it's also sad, you know? And like, that is a big through line in at least my family's story <laughs> because it's, they're an immigrant family where like shit didn't really work out. I was explaining this to one of my friends. It's like, my parents are addicted to financial ruin. It is something I have uh, <laughs> inherited from them. I I am trying to get into recovery, but I'm addicted to it. What can I say? And in the nineties, when they, they signed NAFTA, my father's like business, all that manufacturing went to Mexico. My parents got caught up into 2008, 2009, like the building thing, they uh, got swindled by Countrywide. They got part of the settlement, forced into bankruptcy, lost their house. And so things didn't work out, but they, what's crazy is they really don't hate America. They hate themselves. Mm -hmm. That's capitalism. That yeah. is 100% capitalism that forces you to hate yourself because you don't succeed in a structure that was not made for you. <laughs> yep. It's crazy. And it's like, and when I see online all of the sort of um, outrage from like specifically that incel community, I'm like, this shit was kind of 
built for you. It's this it's your FUBU. It's for you by you. Like, you know, yes. <laughs> like this is the kind of operating, you know, this is for you. And that it's even, it's not even sustaining that. Like it's crushing those that it was once made by and for. Yeah. And so like when I see that and I look at my parents, I feel such sadness for them that they can't, you know, be uh feel relief from that shame. Right. As you're talking, I'm thinking about how white male rage is being externalized in a way. I remember growing up, one of my parents, if like, you know, you'd be walking around and a panhandler would like ask you for money. And whenever it was a white man, my mother would be like, I have three black children here. Like, this is your structure. How dare you ask me (laughs) for money? Like, how can you not serve? Like, come on now. And I'm like, oh, but now, you know, 20, 30, I'm older than that. So maybe 40 years later, they're just like, we're going to rage on YouTube and everyone else because the structure that was built for us doesn't work for us either. But also with the incels, when you create your own personal structure of being profoundly unfuckable, and then you <laughs> blame it on everyone else and it's a movement, I, it's like you made a choice. That's you privilege. <laughs> are an unfuckable privileged asshole. <laughs> Wow. I think about this all the time. And I was telling one of my friends, as a mother of a son, I feel like I have two goals. One, that he doesn't rape anybody. And two, that in 30 years, I don't, there's not some lady who's really mad at me. Mm. (laughs) You're saying you don't want a (laughs) (laughs) daughter-in-law. That's what I mean. I don't want her to be pissed at me because there's, there's sometimes when I'm looking at my husband, just be like, being so stupid that I get pissed at his mom you know what I mean where I'm like how where did what happened like how did she tell you how to do this I'm gonna lighten up just a little bit because you are so fascinating and dynamic can you tell us what's basic about you yeah because I'm like we've like gone deep and I'm like okay just what, what's your Starbucks order or something? You know? <laughs> okay. I was asking my friend this and she, she was like, the most basic thing about us is that we are both attracted to men. And it is, <laughs> that is really lame. <laughs> As a fellow sufferer. Yeah. That's, that's really lame. <laughs> I would say the most basic thing about, I am very into like, it's, it's actually so embarrassing, but I'm really into teen romance movies. Like I'm not there. They cannot be good. It is literally, it has to be like where it gets like 13 year old girls wet. Like that's the thing. Like I like that feeling in movies, TV shows. Do you watch the Outer Banks? I have seen the clips and yes, that is the, what I like. Same. (laughs) Riverdale. I went wild for. I feel like I was the only person on staff not watching Riverdale. I also don't understand why. And I... Maybe it is. It goes back to that like feeling when you're like, this feels like I have to go to the bathroom, but not really. I call <laughs> it I call it loin poles. Loin yes. poles. It's literally, it's like it's not it's not tugging at heartstrings. It's literally it's so sex it's erotic, but it is not sexual. Like it's um it's I love I like watching jealousy on screen and I enjoy watching desire and it's not explicit in any of these things usually sometimes it is and that's fine but it's all the tension I enjoy it's the same reason why I think k-dramas are so popular it is 100% just like 
it's the look, it's the, you know, Pride and Prejudice, the original BBC had it, a ton of that too. Like I, that's the most basic thing about me. It's like, I like looking at, I, honestly, I'm 41. So these are, these, a lot of these actors are old enough to be my child. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it wouldn't have been like a tragedy or anything. Like I'd been like, oh, like I'm like a Mormon mom sort of thing. And they're <laughs> like, I'm like, it is so embarrassing. Like I've watched The Kissing Booth so often. Truly a horrible movie. I do not recommend anyone watch it unless you enjoy that loinpole. I've just put it onto my queue as we're talking. I love that you have a phrase for it too. <laughs> you and Jay, this is so fun. We have to wrap it up, but okay. can you talk a little bit about what's happening with you right now? Where can people find you? Tell folks where they can have the full experience. Okay. So I, I usually don't ever say anything and don't plug because I, again, I'm addicted to financial ruin. Relatable. <laughs> but I actually have a show coming up November 16th in Chicago at the Lincoln Lodge. My podcast partner and I are doing a live taping of our podcast, Two Kims, One Pod at the Lincoln Lodge on November 16th. And we'll be out in LA December 16th at the Lyric Hyperion. We're going to be in Chicago in August to fuck some shit up at the DNC. Oh my gosh. So maybe you'll want to come out and join us and have a little fun. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. This is really fun. Very easy. Thank you guys. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Follow all of her shenanigans on the best Unji and the best Unji.com. Thanks, Unji. And thanks again to Rebecca Tracer. And before we get to all of our business, on a personal note, Moji and I want to just pay tribute to a great member of our movement that we tragically lost this week, Andrea Miller, who was the president of the National Institute for Reproductive Health. She was a fellow Minnesotan, tireless warrior in our movement. She worked at the ACLU. She was one of the founders of the Center for Reproductive Rights. And during her tenure at the National Institute for Reproductive Health, they have done incredible work on the ground, state by state fighting these laws. We were honored to work in partnership with them on Operation Save Abortion, on so many of our projects, one of our first funders. They even early on honored us with one of their Champions of Choice Awards. So Andrea Miller, you will be sorely missed. Uh, Rest in power, friend. We will carry on your legacy with heart and determination. You will be so deeply missed. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. And if you want to keep listening, like, subscribe, and show us some love with a five-star rating and stay connected on social media at Abortion Front. Let's make a difference and let's have some fun doing it. Speaking of fun, we've partnered with Works in Progress LA on a groovy textile art piece. Proceeds benefit Abortion Access Front. Link to buy is in our show notes. And looking for where you might fit in to do some abortion activism? I mentioned it before. It's the five-part training series, Operation Save Abortion at OperationSaveAbortion.com. And if you hit over there, you'll also find our super cool activist calendar, which is chock full of local national actions and educational opportunities. One of the featured events coming up on the calendar, New Yorkers, Wednesday, November 8th at 6.30. Head over to Caveat on the Lower East Side or hop online to stream My Body, My Voice, Songs for Safe Access. The event is an intimate evening of music, storytelling, and solidarity for reproductive justice featuring up-and-coming singer-songwriters. Proceeds from the event will support the Bridget Alliance. More information can be found on our activist calendar or on the event website. Links in the show notes. Next week, we are dark. 
But join us the following week for a special episode with best-selling author of White Fragility, Robin D'Angelo, and self-professed liberal redneck comedian Trey Crowder to help us navigate the tough conversations happening around the family dinner table over the holidays. I can't wait for this. I feel like everybody runs away in horror instead of like being able to like work out some shit at the table. So that's going to be a super great episode. If you like what we do, please support us by joining our Patreon. You'll get great content and cool merch and you'll get experiences. All the pledges support this pod and our activism at Abortion Access Front. Pledge at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills. FBK is edited by Remy DeTournay and is produced by Abortion Access Front. Finally, we leave you with the host of Fox's Outkick, Charlie Arnold, a woman who's showing us her whole ass and the fact that she's never heard of water treatment facilities. My biggest piece of advice, ladies, for the love of God, stop drinking tap water. Tap water is effectively birth control because it has birth control in it. Because, well, it's just how it goes. Women pee and they are peeing out their medication. So yes, men, also you need to definitely listen up. This is a big heads up for you because also this estrogen in the water that you are drinking, the tap water, is also going to mess with your hormones. Feminist Buzzkills, the podcast from Abortion Access Front. New episodes drop Friday. When BS is popping, we pop off. And if you want to support our podcast and all the work of Abortion Access Front, like, subscribe, and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills.